Listener Production. When you think about it, there's a lot of government in our lives. The federal government in Canberra, the state government in our respective states around the country, and local government in our own little pocket of existence. I'm Adam Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, we've covered the feds, dabbled in what state governments do, but never really delved into what local government means in the grand scheme. Until now. What does local government do? What does it hope to achieve? Does it have as much to do with our everyday lives as anything the Prime Minister does or says? My guest is Jess Scully, Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney Council. Jess, thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. How are you? I'm good, Adam. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Now, sorry for the passive-aggressive question first up, but why is there local government? My question to you is why do we have the other levels of government? Really? Local (laughs) is where it's at, 100%. It's the stuff that's close to people's lives. You can see it and smell it and you know if it's working. Um, And it's the place that, for the most part, tends to stay away from all of the politics that exhausts us all. So what you're saying is that we should bulldoze Canberra? I am willing to relocate Canberra to an undersea location. Um, and possibly even the states. Who needs those either? Just the just the government buildings. So the, if people can live their everyday lives if they yeah. want to live in Canberra. But why, why, and I can hear already the passion that you have for local government, why is it like that? Why have you seen it that way, given the fact that you know a fair bit about the tiers of government in Australia? I just think there's there's something about the immediacy and the tangibility of local government. I think local government is the place where... Uh, it's the level of government that makes decisions about that most immediately impact on people's lives. The kinds of services and public spaces that are available to them, the quality and the quantity of the development that goes on around them in terms of buildings, planning and land use, which is so essential in terms of the kinds of activities that are permitted and the social or antisocial uses of place. So it's the level of government that I think we interact with and we touch the most in our everyday life. How are they all connected, the levels of government, and what is local government connected to most in terms of up the chain, state or federal government? Local government isn't in the constitution. And this is something that people have actually been fighting for for quite a long time uh, with the idea that if local government was enshrined in the federal constitution in the Commonwealth, then there'd be some consistency and some certainty about local government. And, And there are some really good reasons why we need that. At the moment in Australia, every state determines the terms and the the kind of conditions, the nature, the scope of local government. So we say that we're kind of creatures of state government. They are the ones who decide the size of our municipalities. They decide the terms of our office, what we are allowed to cover or not cover, um, and also the conditions under which councillors, elected officials operate. Uh, so they're the ones that are that are sort of responsible for us and that we're responsible to, in a sense, and they can hold us to account. Can you hold them to account the other way or it doesn't not work like that? nearly enough, Adam, <laughs> and I have some questions about that. But, you know, <laughs> look, we, we actually do need more independence Uh, And I think independent oversight for local government. And if we had that certainty of being enshrined in the constitution, Mm. then I think we'd have more independence. Um, At the moment, we don't. We, you know, if if a state government is unhappy with what a a local government is doing, they can just turf them out and bring in an administrator, which I don't think actually is democratic at all. Does it happen? 
it does happen. Give us an example. It's, how do, how does it happen? <laughs> I mean, it happened in Sydney. I think maybe probably twenty years ago. It's it's happening um, at the moment in the Central Coast. There have been issues with um, with uh, management. Central Coast of New South Wales. Yeah, that's right. Central Coast of New South Wales. There's been some issues around management, cash flow, things like that. Because I think in part due to the pandemic, and and they've put in an administrator. Uh, it happened in Geelong. It happened in Perth. It's happened in lots and lots of parts of Australia where a whole democratically elected government is turfed out and um, an administrator's brought in. So you're saying with the not being in the constitution, there's no actual legal protection to actually have local government. If state governments want to, they got all, you know, big and brave. They thought, oh, we can handle this. They, they just do away with you. Why don't they? I think they do, but I think they don't because we do, we're do. we running interference for them, essentially. Mm. You know, we're the, the part of government that people probably feel most comfortable interfacing with. They um, know how to contact us. We're accountable. We're physically there a lot of the time. And so I think possibly for state government, it's helpful for them to not have to deal with the unique conditions of each municipality. You know, one part of Sydney or Melbourne or, or, or Adelaide is different to another. And local government helps attune service to those different ends. But there are some real problems with that. So, for example, the state government set our rate cap. They're the ones who decide how much money we can gather from our community. Uh, and that means that there are some local governments that are chronically under-resourced and have to deliver services to complex or, or vast uh, municipalities, but they don't have the resources to do that. And so they end up cutting corners, they end up closing pools or sporting facilities, and it has an impact on people's lives. So putting it into real estate terms then, so local government is like the property management of real estate, whereas state government, kind of they buy and sell and, and own the stuff. It's a bit like that, I have to say. And and you know what? They're pretty good at selling as well, a lot of those state governments. So what we do in local government, you know, from, from my perspective, particularly at the City of Sydney, we supplement our income by also buying properties, by also having alternative income streams, because that's one of the things that we have to do as a local government is actually assure our own future and our own financial operations. And and we're also really intent on maintaining public assets for community use. Does everything go through just the relationship between state and local government? There's, there's nothing much to do when you're at the local government level to do with that top tier I mentioned before, the federal government? Not, Canberra types? Not a huge amount, but we do um, advocate to them very strongly. So um, I should also draw a distinction between capital city local government and I guess more suburban or regional local government. So at the City of Sydney, we're also part of something called uh, the Council of Capital City Lord Mayors. And this is a, a coalition, I suppose, of all of the Lord Mayors of those key drivers of uh, state economies. And they come together and advocate for things that they think the state or federal governments need to do. So last year, it was a big focus on homelessness and pushing federal governments to invest in housing and homelessness. Um, we've also done the same working together on climate action as well. And I think that's really significant because when you think about local government in the inner city of cities, we're really the driver of a lot of economies. So the city of Sydney local government area that, that I'm a, a part of, we're 27 square kilometres. And yet we make up 25% of New South Wales economy, about 7% of the national economy. It's such an important driver of jobs, of growth, of industry, of innovation. 
but we don't really have metropolitan policy in Australia. We kind of focus on regional and suburban policy a lot more. So we're kind of in the corner of fighting for uh, the downtowns of cities, for the small businesses and the big businesses that are centred there. So you're almost together. You're almost like a lobby group rather than a level of government up to the Canberra types. That is, it's like they get the knock on the door. It's like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> they want something. We'll listen. You know, they're elected. Yeah, it's a tricky one as well because, you know, inner cities tend to be more progressive um, and they tend to prioritise, you know, walkability, cycling, environmental action, tech startups, knowledge economy, universities, you know, because those are the things that really are the future economy, in my opinion. Uh, and yet, I think both sides of, of major party politics have tended to play to marginal seats and regional electorates in particular. And so there's nothing very appealing for them to invest in inner cities. And yet inner cities are really important if you mm. want to have a thriving economy. With the politics that goes into various levels of government. So federal government, you, you see it, and we've talked about it on this, just to try and decipher it here on Peacock Politics about, you know, there's big differences of opinion on energy policy and climate action and how to create more jobs in this country and how do we create what type of jobs we create. And there's politics around that. There's to and fro. There's the left and the right. Is it the same in local government or does everyone kind of come in on the same page and act in a different way? Oh, I think there's probably two key things here. I think the first is that I think Australians, for the most part, want action on climate change. You know, whenever we see a poll, you know, it's 75 to 85% of Australians, depending on your poll, want immediate action on climate change. And so I think where people live, um, they want to see that tangibly. You know, they want to see you collecting their rubbish in separated recyclable ways so that they can see that that's not just going to landfill. They want to have tree-lined streets. They want to see water and stormwater being reused in thoughtful ways. You know, in a tangible sense, I think Australians are 100% for climate action. And so I think it's more common to see local governments that are tangibly taking climate action rather than talking the politics up about it. But having said that, there are still political parties represented at local government levels. So at the City of Sydney, there's 10 elected councillors. Um, I am an independent. I'm part of Clovermore's independent team. Um, there are five of us. There were six of us elected. Um, but there are five of us uh, who are part of that team of progressive independents. And there's two Liberal Party members, one Labor Party member and two other independents. So you do see party politics coming into play in our debates as well. But having said that, broadly, it's a group that are broadly more progressive perhaps than than our federal politics might suggest. Do you get on in council meetings as opposed to, like we see question time <laughs> in Canberra, they're just yelling at each other. It seems nothing gets done. Is it the same at uh, local council meetings? Um, unfortunately, I think we agree on, on a lot of things. And I think unfortunately, there are there are there's still tension and there's still politics at play. And, you know, I don't understand the dynamics of, of major parties, um, but I know that people have to fight for pre-selection and they have to get recognised within their groups as well. So there are lots of reasons for those mm. tensions. But within local government, using your example, do you feel that there's different, you know, ideologies pulling everyone in different directions or is it a sense of togetherness a bit more? I think 
there there is a lot of unity on on certain topics. So, for mm. example, um, our council has been really unified in um, support for marriage equality, for support for marginalised groups. There's a lot of kind of socially progressive unity. And I think for the most part, um, in theory, a lot of, of environmental action has support. But then when you come to the tangible stuff, like, uh, you know, there's a car space here today, but it actually, if you want real tangible climate action, it needs to be a tree or a cycleway. That's where you start to see fractures. Okay. It'd be the same around the country. Like you Everywhere. go to the far west of Queensland, for instance, and it'd be about what's happening to the local mine or what's happening to our water supply. And it'd be you know, pulled in different directions in that regard. It's right. And you know what? People can say that they're all about environmental action on paper, but then when mm. it becomes, you know, that street corner, that road, you know, that that park or that spend, then that's where, where people um, tend to deviate. How do you help the economy within that realm as well, the, the local government? Because federal government can go, bang, here's $400 million for this project. We can have a tax cut. We can have a tax raise or whatever. They, they can do what they want with the economy in a sense. How does local government deal with the local economy when all of that's going on yeah. above? Uh, it's, it's absolutely true that, you know, federal government and state government um, to, to a larger extent, you know, control uh, industry policy and uh, monetary policy and all of those sorts of things. They've got more money to spend as well. But at the City of Sydney, you know, we have a big responsibility to keeping the local economy moving. And we do a lot in terms of grants and spending to support the local economy. So last year during COVID, we made something in the in excess of $70 million worth of grants and concessions and uh, in order to support local businesses and community organisations and cultural sector organisations. So we do spend to support that sector. Um, we have a really sophisticated tech startups plan. We have a really sophisticated international education and student support program because the city of Sydney's home to a huge number under normal circumstances of international students. It's a key driver of our local economy. It's estimated that each international student spends about $130,000 a year in Sydney. So we have to make sure that we take care of them as well. But the other thing that we do is that's really important is that we invest in the public realm of Sydney. So the beautiful pedestrianised streets, the, you know, putting in public art, um, putting in the light rail, you know, all of those sorts of things, the city of Sydney is invested very heavily in. And we create the conditions that enable businesses to flourish and want to be centred and headquartered in Sydney. You just don't set their tax rates, (laughs) for instance. (laughs) No, we don't. So that's that's where the layers come in. That's right. What about listening to the people that put you there in the first place? How is it different to say a state MP or a federal member of parliament or senator? It's different in that I see them down the shops all the time. Um, I the local th- ones? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's different in that we, I think we're more visible and more accountable in our local areas because we don't have to go to you know, Macquarie or Spring Street or Canberra, we're here all the time in the places where we live and and work. Uh, So I think in that sense, we're more visible and accountable. But the other thing I guess I want to raise, Adam, is that, you know, we 
often hear from a small minority of people. There's a kind of a really uh, limited and empowered minority who tend to be older, um, wealthier, they're more likely to be owner-occupiers or landlords. Um, They tend to be from an English-speaking background. Um, And and so we're more likely to hear from a really small minority of people. And there's a huge number of people, like in the city of Sydney, the majority of people are tenants, not not owner-occupiers or landlords. The majority of people live in apartment buildings, not in freestanding houses. Um, And we have uh, more than 50% of our population were either born overseas or have at least one parent born overseas. So we have Mm. a really diverse, culturally diverse background and a young population. We've, um, median age is 32, a lot of young people coming in and out of the city. So we also have to be proactive in terms of reaching out to groups who wouldn't normally engage with local government or don't even think they're entitled to be represented. And that's something that I'm really focused on. Yeah, I guess it's hard because you're dealing with that side of things that local government do. It's almost if you're living there and it's good, it's just ticking over. And if something's not so good, it's like, oh, that's no, you don't really jump on the fact that Oh, I'm going to go and speak to my local councillor about this. This is outrageous. It's, it's <laughs> like you can yell at the television when yeah. the prime minister speaks yeah. or the op- member of the, the, the leader of the opposition, for instance. But who do you yell at or who do you converse with when you're not happy with what's happened to the local toilet block at the local park, for instance? Yeah, I mean, usually um, local governments and councils have a kind of a, a helpline or a complaints line, and people or apps. There's a big, there's a snap and solve app that a lot of local governments use where people take a photo of something that's gone wrong and they send it in. 99% of the time, people's issues are resolved without ever interfacing with their elected officials. It's only when people feel like they aren't being heard or those processes aren't working or there's some sort of strategic or policy systemic issue that they come to to their elected councillors to address that issue. Um, and as I said, it's, it's only a small proportion of people who even know that that's a process that's open to them. Um, so it's a question of, you know, how do we take that on board and and manage and support those people, but also do so with balance to the greater needs of the greater good. You know, the people who we don't hear from um, and the people who maybe don't live in the area yet or live just outside the area but need to commute through. And something else that's really important about capital cities is that while we have 250,000 people who live in the city of Sydney, local government area, for example, we have more than a million people who under normal circumstances come into Sydney every day who work here, study here, um, tourists, visitors. It's anticipated that by 2050, we'll have 2 million people a day using our city. So we're also responsible to those people to make sure that the city works well for everyone. Yeah. If if I'm five minutes over on my parking today, can I get in contact with you? Because <laughs> it'll be one of your parking rangers that do me in. Hey, they probably got me too. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> they're only doing their job. Exactly, they? they're exactly. Only, like, they're they're someone's, uh, someone's wife or husband or something like that. That's so. right. Um, how ruthless, and we've seen elections get pretty ruthless in Australian politics, how ruthless do local government elections get with each other trying to get elected? Oh, hey, I mean, I, I've only been through one election five years ago when I got elected and I'm about to go through another one in September. So I hope the answer is not very, but you know, um, I do think it can, it it can get, um, messy and, um, unfortunately, you know, there are, there are kind of egos and, and, and that sort of thing at play and, and it can, I think, get quite nasty. And I think one of the challenges we have is a really limited media landscape in Australia. Um, and we have at the City of Sydney, because we've always been 
bold and audacious and progressive. We cop so much flack, particularly from, you know, the Daily Telegraph, News Limited publications from Talkback Radio. They love to kick us because we always look like we're doing this like extremely out-of-the-box stuff, or they find the most out-of-the-box stuff that we're doing. Uh, But the fact is, you know, we represent a part of the city and part of Australia that is more progressive and daring and audacious. You know, people who are creatives and environmentalists, they tend to come and live in places like this, and they do want us to take that kind of action. So uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, there'll be a few shock jocks and, and angry columnists and Sky News presenters having a go at us this year. There'll be people taking advantage of that. But I think Australians are just sick of that. And I I think people, it sort of turns people off more than it wins votes, I think. What about within the politician v politician? Is that as ruthless as it gets at a uh, state and federal government level as well? Or you get on pretty well? I think there's a bit of tension as well. Look, people are people everywhere, you know, whether it's your PNC or, you know, CWA or your local council, there's going to be tensions and conflict. I I wish I could tell you it was a rose, it was a rosy, but it's not. (laughs) I wish I could tell you there was a good bit of politics where everyone was friendly to each other. But look, as I said, I think there's some things that we just fundamentally agree on and you don't have these sorts of um, deep culture wars about stuff that really is about people's identity and Mm. I respect that. I find that so constructive that we always work together on that stuff. Um, But there are other things that we're always going to disagree on. So there's backstabbing. That, that, that was my question. No, 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 no. It's totally front. It's totally front oh, okay. on, through front, the front on, yeah. through the front door. Okay. I think we know where we all stand. I think that's. I think that's okay. What challenges does local government face in the current political and financial and in general society, the, the climate that we live in right now? I think there, there's multiple challenges. Um, I think one of them, is, as I said, you know, the vulnerability of local government sort of democratically. Um, There's the challenges around how much revenue we can generate and how well-resourced local governments are when they're kind of being pushed to do more and more. Um, You know, local governments provide everything from your local swimming pool to the library to every playing field, um, you know, every public park, playground, you know, things that really got to work out during COVID and the lockdown. Um, And yet it's not like we have more resources to, to, help manage those places. Mm. Um, and the other thing that we struggle with is that we are responsible for planning and land use decisions. Um, and sometimes those can cause great conflict in communities because people, in many instances, the people we hear from are opposed to development or they're concerned that development won't be done sensitively or well. So we have a challenging position because we have to balance the needs of people who already live in a place. Um, the the property rights and development rights of people who own property mm. uh, and the needs of future residents as well. And so it's a difficult balance there. And then, of course, state governments can come in and set their own rules and sort of throw our planning regulations out the window and say, no, 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 that's a state significant development. Thanks very much. I'll be putting a casino there or whatever else they want to put in that place. And then they can set their own rules. And that can really dishearten people and make them lose faith in the planning process. Hmm. And also there's just been a lot of rubbish development around the traps too, and and that can turn people off development as well. So there is a tension there between growth um, and and accommodating more people wanting to live in the cities of Australia because that's where jobs are, that's where people can access 
employment and, and education and a whole bunch of benefits. It's also more sustainable to live more densely and to live in a walkable environment where you can um, where you can sort of share resources with your neighbours. But that does put pressures on local communities as well. Is now the time to bring up the fact that I love golf? <laughs> and I think Moore Park is a magnificent golf go. course. Here we go. All right. This, this has all been a pretext to get me into <laughs> arguing about golf, hasn't it? All right, here we go. Let's do this. I'm a golfer. Okay. Okay, here's an interesting test okay, cutting. Go, let's, so, go, let's go. Yeah. Moore Park, for those listening around Australia, Moore Park is a golf course that's right in the centre of Sydney and it's the most used golf course, I think, in the almost in the Southern Hemisphere. I've got no problem with it, obviously, because I like golf. A few people that I've uh, read articles about think that golf belongs in the bush and shouldn't even have golf courses in the city. But I don't know if you're along those lines, Jess, but there is talk that they want to downgrade Moore Park Golf Course from an 18-hole golf course to a nine-hole golf course uh, to use the land that's of that nine holes for a better use, whether it's parkland or you're not going to chuck a big block of flats up there, are you? Never. No, 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 okay. Never. I was just checking that. So th- it's an interesting debate yeah. because you, it's it's raised a lot of tension, especially in the golf community, for instance, around Sydney, about where it stands. But City of Sydney Council perhaps want we're, to use that. That's right. So we're we're advocating for Moore Park Golf Course to be halved, um, and and here's why. So uh, this was all public land, Centennial Park, Moore Park, the domain. All of it was granted to the people of Sydney for recreation use by Governor Macquarie way back when. Then in 1913, a portion of it was dedicated to one sport, to golf, and right now. Uh, 1913 to 2021, right? So in that time, we've gone from the population of Sydney having under 700,000 people to 5.3 million people living in Sydney, right? So exponential growth, a whole lot more people living in this area. And particularly in this part of Sydney, which is about three k's from the centre of the city. And you've got about 90,000 people who are living kind of within a few k's walk of this space. So you have a lot more people sharing space, a lot more of a need to share fairly public resources. And I think it's good policy to rethink, let's say every hundred years or so, how we use public resources to maximise public benefit. Now, nothing against golf, Mm -hmm. but there are 12 golf courses within a 10K radius of the Moore Park Golf Course. Some of them are private, some of them are expensive. I give you that. But 12 golf courses. And we're talking about 45 hectares of public land dedicated to one use fenced off. What I'd like to see is for half of that, um, plus the driving range to be retained for golfers' exclusive use and for half of that to be shared with the rest of the community. And I understand it's 18 holes is a different game to nine holes, but Golfing participation has been steadily on the decline for Mm. many years and it is becoming more common for people to play a nine-hole game or a two-nine, back-and-forth nine-hole game in order to maximise the use of land. So land values in our capital city are just out of control and you just can't get 20 hectares of public land for for public use anywhere. Uh, And I think it's time for us to reconsider how we use this public asset. I've done this series. This is the fifth series of this, and I haven't sat here and had a debate uh-huh. because I, I I try to just sit on the fence and, uh-huh. and get across how politics work. Um, should I start now? No, I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll leave it. I just want to see how it plays out. Yeah, yeah. Functionally, so okay, you you've yeah. set across that, and you're going to cop opposition, of course, from people like me yep. about it. And some are going to be louder more, and some are going to be 
full on about it. For instance, can the state government come in and say, for instance, the the treasurer of the state, New South Wales, happens to be in love with golf? No, that's not happening. Is that the end of the matter? Could it happen that way? So the reason that this came up was that the New South Wales government created a new trust, the Greater Sydney Parklands Trust. And this trust is now responsible for all of these big pieces of public parkland, including Moore Park. And because of that, we thought this was a good opportunity for the trust to reconsider the public land. But at the end of the day, it's the Minister for Public Space, Rob Stokes in New South Wales, who's responsible for this. And it's also that trust who's responsible for it. So they've got to find a way that they're happy, if they were to go ahead with it, that they're happy that they could retain the income that they're generating. It's the, In my understanding, it's the driving range that generates the majority of the income for this golf course. So if there's a workable way that they could make that work and to share the land. Um, and at the end of the day, they're responsible. But what the minister asked us to do at the City of Sydney was to go out and assess public sentiment on it. And so we ran a consultation program in late 2020 and we're still waiting on the feedback. But here's another thing that we did. We also engaged a market research firm to do some random surveys. They surveyed 400 people who live within 5Ks of the golf course and asked them what they thought. Mm. And 77% of them were in favour of the golf course being halved and, and turned back to public use. 81% of them had never played a round of golf and 84% of them had used a public park in at least the last, at least once in the last week. Mm. So it's not anything against the game of golf or any other particular sport. It's just such a huge amount of land that's being used by such a small minority of people. But you can't pull the trigger on it until you've done those consultation initiatives and, and got all the feedback back and then you go. And it, so it's, and it's, it's not like a local government can click their fingers like other levels of government and get something done, pass through, bang, straight away. No, in other, if we'd owned that land, then we could we could do that. But yep. it, the land is managed by a trust for the people of New South Wales. There are other local governments, like in mm. Brisbane, um, the local government there has, just they own the Victoria Park uh, golf course and they're turning the entire thing into a public park. Mm. Um, in Melbourne, um, Northcote Golf Course, I believe, is also owned by the local government and there's a discussion now about turning that into a public park. Uh, and in the inner west of Sydney, there's recently been a discussion about doing the same thing. And, and in, in that instance, the council came down in favour of retaining the golf course. So it can go either way. Yeah. It's just a little example I thought I'd bring up that how it all plays out on such a hot topic, it, it, it is a topic that makes newspapers and makes front pages of newspapers and it's a, it's a good story if you're from a journalistic point of view. So it's interesting to see how it plays out. Unfortunately for you, um, Rob Stokes, his office is literally 300 metres from my house. <laughs> do you reckon I'm not going to knock on his door? No, I won't. I'll, I'll let it all play out democratically. Uh, do, you know, do you know what? Like it's very hard to remove privileges once they've been given and when people have had them for 100 years. But look, I think we need to have these conversations, right? Like politics is just social decision-making. That's all it is. It's just mm. a process or a series of processes for people to work through differences and to find a way that everyone can be equally unhappy at the end of the day. And I think that's what's going to happen here. <laughs> but that's what happens with so many things in politics all around the place. And the more I learn about it, the, the more it's the same. It's just people and their points of view. And some people get their points of view across and get it through and other people don't. And it's how you move on from that that's quite important and sometimes gets stuck in the modern day. 
Can I tell you a quick story about how I realised this was always complicated? The very first item that came to the very first council meeting that I ever was a, a decision maker in was a footway dining policy. Oh, no brainer. How easy is this? Of course, everyone loves pulling chairs and tables out onto the footpath. Let's use our streets. How magical. Of course, who could possibly be opposed to this? In walks the first people to speak at the committee meeting and it's the Vision Impaired Society of Australia. And they said, well, you know, we navigate by the building lines and if you put a bunch of chairs and tables out the front, we can't see where we're going. We don't know where we're going. Mm. And at that moment, I realised that every single decision that you ever make at a local government level or another level of government, there's always going to be people on both sides of the discussion and usually they're both right. But as a decision maker, you've got to navigate a path between them and try and reach some kind of balance. Hmm. That's the joys of a democratic process, I guess. It's a lot easier to be an autocrat, isn't it? <laughs> Surely. Surely there's an easier it's way. There's a much higher risk of assassination, <laughs> so I don't know if I'd take that choice. Good point. But in your opinion, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, there's always always going to be a role, even though it's not in the constitution, as you pointed out at the start, there's always a big, big role for local government in our lives. I think it should be bigger and I think it should grow and I think it will grow. I think what I'd like to see is a devolution, a decentralisation of power. And so that more power is given to local communities to more proactively and actively make decisions about their places. Because I think that's the level at which I hope you can get those different groups in a room and have a conversation with each other and there are tangible outcomes to the choices that you make. Um, so I would love to see that and I'd like to see more active citizenship and participation and something I'm excited about um, are things like participatory budgeting and, and people coming together, citizens' juries and citizens in a representative way uh, of the local community deciding on the way forward. Jess? Thanks so much for explaining more about local government. And here's a little bet. If Park Golf Course gets halved, if it does, if it gets through, I'll take you to my local golf course as long as you promise not to halve it and we'll have a round of golf. But if it doesn't, <laughs> you'll shout at Park for the 18, all right, all right, and we'll go in a car. All right, sounds great. Awesome. Thanks for your time on Peacock <laughs> Politics so. and explain so much about local government. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, producer Tina Matilov, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.